The Walk the Mile podcast is produced on Gadigal land. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Skeg Starlinghurst stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. May our reconciliation be an ongoing process of love and compassion. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Lee Lindsay, school chaplain at Skeggs Darlinghurst, and you're listening to Walk the Mile, a podcast that opens up conversations that we need to have. Hello everyone, and welcome to Walk the Mile. Today I have a wonderful guest, uh, someone that I taught, I can't say a student of mine anymore because she's not a student of mine anymore. Can't even call her a kid anymore because <laughs> she's not a kid anymore. <laughs> Eleanor Gordon-Smith. How are you, Eleanor? I'm really well. I'm really well. I can't not call you Miss Silly Lindsay, so I might have to revert to that, but <laughs> I'm well. All right. whatever You can call me whatever you want. Uh, it's <laughs> great, to, great to have you here. Now, Eleanor finished at Skeggs. We worked out just a minute ago. She finished at Skeggs in 2009, and I remember you as a uh, as a very inquisitive student. Would that be right? <laughs> Is that how you remember yourself? That's polite, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who who was who had some great questions? Who wouldn't? Um, I guess you know wouldn't take just whatever I said or whatever anybody said, I guess. You you had a lot of questions around it, which, you know, what you're doing now is very much that, I guess, too. And so yeah. can you explain to me a little bit about what you what you do? You're living in New York? That's right. Um, so what I, well, what I do is I'm an academic philosopher now. So I've, I've actually just finished a PhD in philosophy and I specialise in ethics, we all know what that is, and epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. And the sort of key strain of my work is about doubt and what role doubt and kind of inquiry and persuasion plays in our lives, and particularly what kind of moral or ethical hazards there are associated with doubt and certain kinds of reasoning. And then outside my academic life, um, I write an advice column for Guardian Australia and um I try to keep these two strains of life sort of talking to each other. I try to make sure that the advice that I give is philosophically inclined and that the philosophy that I do in academic settings is, you know, informed by real people and real situations and right. real things that go wrong. Wow. How does it feel to be someone who gives advice, to to write a column for giving advice to people who I'm guessing are strangers, <laughs> but you're giving advice? But at uh, How old are you now? Do you mind me asking? No, that's why I think I'm 30. I think I'm 31. I think I'm 31. Um, <laughs> yeah, it feels, it feels super weird. Um, and I think I was just thinking, actually, this is, I feel like this is, like, I was I was just thinking that this is something that you probably have a lot more experience with than I do, which is I remember from school, and I know that you were doing it for a long time before I arrived and a long time since, is being someone who people will go to when they need help and when they want kind of counsel and they want wisdom and they want insight 
but not wanting ever, I thought, oh, I thought you did this really well, not wanting ever to do that in a way that feels didactic or like, oh, okay, here's the answer to what you should do or I know better than you or here's the kind of received, you know, wisdom or word about what you should do. Um, so it's a very weird position to be in this. And, and I started writing the column when I was 27 and I remember I begged the editors to let me do it under a pseudonym because I was thinking no one is going to take anything I say seriously if they know that this is just some random person in their late 20s. Um, but it's evolved a lot as I've, as I've been writing it. And I think I'm, I think I'm in a, a better, I think I feel better now about being able to say something that might be useful to people. But it's definitely weird because it's not the kind yeah. of task where, you know, I, it, it's not the sort of thing where someone says, oh, which way is the train? And you say that way. Yeah. And like, there's the answer. It's much more a sort of collaboration oh, or definitely. here are some questions that might be helpful. Or, I don't know. How do you think about it? How do you feel about being the person? I, I totally agree. I, you know, I often get people ringing me up and saying, I need your advice. And sometimes I'll jump in and say, look, I just want to let you know I've got nothing, <laughs> but I'm willing to talk about it. And so mm. I guess, you know, you write a column. I, I have these opportunities to talk to people. I'm sure you do as well. Um because that what you said about being collaborative, I think that's so important because, you know, I I myself am trying to work out this thing called life. And and even though I, I might have a faith or, you know, there's this sort of around religion or faith there, there is, it's a bit more contained about belief and all of that. You've got your, your book, which talks about a belief or whatever, but even that's up to interpretation. Yeah. Um still trying to work it out you know every day things come your way people come your way every single day thinking well yeah i don't know yeah. <laughs> so, but i think walking and i think the people that i appreciate the most are those who walk with me those who uh, are willing to listen and to share their stories and just to go yeah this is tough and there's something mm -hmm. that's quite hard to explain what it is but i think that's quite helpful do you agree Totally. I think, and I was just saying a second ago, you know, I try to keep the column and the advice stuff working with the academic philosophy. I think one way that philosophy can go a bit wrong, I'm a little hesitant to use the word wrong, but one way that it can go a bit wonky or it can kind of get tied up in knots is that you think that what you're doing is searching for an answer, mm. you know, so you you get frustrated when you haven't got the answer and you feel like, oh, I must have gone wrong or I must be stupid or something's failed in this system. Yeah. And actually, you know, in the advice realm and in the just sort of giving of counsel realm, it's way clearer there that figuring out an answer is a very small proportion of what we're trying to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, there are all these other bits that are about, as you just said, you know, walking with someone and acknowledging the experience and just like, having someone hear you and hear how hard it is to have to ask the question. Yeah. Even that provides a whole lot of relief, yeah. whether or not you ever get to exactly. a satisfactory answer. Exactly. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. How did it, how did that come about in terms of you being asked to write that column? Uh, so I wrote a book in 2019. It was published in 2019. And the book is called Stop Being Reasonable. And it's a series of non-fiction stories, a series of interviews that I did with people about what I call high stakes changes of mind. So it's sort of true stories of people who have had to give up 
really foundational beliefs as part of their life. So uh, some of them are religious beliefs, but some of them are things like, you know, I trusted my spouse and it turns out they committed this horrible crime or I'm realizing that the really close community that I grew up in and that I've always loved and felt connected to is actually a cult. And like, maybe this is really bad and I need to leave it. And I've been being deceived this whole time. Um, There's a sort of more lighthearted one, which is someone who went on a reality TV show. And while he was on the show, he realized that maybe the personality that he had been sort of living under and projecting was itself an act. So he realized by being on TV, oh, maybe I don't have to be the way that I've always been. You know, maybe maybe I I think I am. So it's all these like really kind of seismic, deep changes in belief. So I had written that and then... Um, the fantastic lifestyle editor of Guardian Australia, Alex Gorman, um, I think had just encountered that and thought, you know, the the topic of massive changes of mind or massive crisis points in a person's life, that might be a natural way to set up an advice column. So I think she, you know, bless her, had the wisdom to think maybe there's something here. Um, and now four years later, I hope that there is, but I didn't believe her at first. I thought you must be wrong, but let's try. <laughs> But I think it sounds to me like what you're doing in that advice column is that you're giving people space to think. It's not it's not advice. It's just going, well, let's look at this and let's think about this. Is that would that be right? Yeah, totally. That's how or that's how I like to think about. It. That's how I think it goes if I've done my job well. Because mm. um, I think, I mean, you know, it's a funny question. What what do we want when we ask for advice? Yeah. What do the people who write to me think that I'll be able to provide? What do people who phone you up and say, you know, Gary, I need some help? What What do you think you're going to get as a result of that that would drive you to outsource your problems to someone else? Like that's a very vulnerable and personal and kind of yeah. peculiar thing to do is yeah. to hand over the yeah. reins of your life to someone else. So, so what are we hoping for when we do that? I think it has to be more than an answer. I think it has to be something about resonance or like that someone else will be able to see something in the situation that we haven't seen or be able to describe it in a different way or something like this so that's yeah that's how I try to think of it in fact (laughs) I'm sure this is something that comes up at school now that chat GPT is you know (laughs) rampant you can just outsource everything to the computer it's so funny to ask chat GPT or AI for advice on something because it will just give you this incredibly rational, very calculated, sanitized list of pros and cons. And you leave feeling utterly deflated and unheard, you know. I mean, like, it hasn't gone right at all. You just think, well, this has been a terrible interaction. And if a friend did that to you, if you said, I'm going through a really hard time, and they said, well, okay, you should consider this and consider that and weigh the pros and cons, you'd think you've lost your mind. Like, that's not what I wanted at all. Yeah, exactly. I'm often saying to people, you know, uh, kids and and adults will say, "I want to talk to this person about something," but it's it's a risk for for that reason that you just explained. It's a risk because they the the, the risk is that they might get back, "Oh, have you tried this?" or "You should just do," yeah. it, or "Don't worry about it." And that is advice, isn't it? Like that is okay. You've put me in this position, and I'm just going to tell you what you should do. And as you said, it doesn't fill the space because we are looking for something else. We're not, you know, life isn't like that. It's not a series of questions and answers and those things. 
we're, we are looking for something else. And I think just as you were talking, I think, yeah, why, that is a great question. Why do people say that? I think often people are looking for advice because often people feel quite isolated in their questions. Or, and, and as you said, to do that is to be quite vulnerable because you are giving of yourself in that in that moment, aren't you? You you and even people writing to you or, or asking you questions in those situations. Uh, I'm sure that's a, that feel, might feel like a risk as well. Totally, and I think it's I think it's also really hard to admit when you don't know something or especially when you don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's such cultural and egotistical pressure to have it sorted out and to be able to sort it out by yourself. Yeah. And yeah. so you can feel kind of foolish to say, I, I just don't know. I don't know what I should yeah. do. I don't know what that is. I don't know why I've got into this mess. You know, all these things are, the condition of not knowing can sometimes feel like the condition you should have left behind in adolescence. Of course, that's not the case, but you, know, you can feel like it's a sort of failure of maturity or something to find yourself not having answers. Yeah, but what I get from the from the title of your book and the little bits that I've read <laughs> is that there's actually, you're suggesting there's actually a freedom in not knowing. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's really well put. Yeah, absolutely. Um there is a freedom in not knowing and there is a freedom in there specifically there's the freedom in, like in the period of trying to figure things out mm. um and this is a really philosophical idea you know i mean this goes back to kant and kind of you know big german thinkers is that the the idea that is that freedom and autonomy and self determination are really closely wrapped up with thinking things through for oneself uh, and kind of autonomy of thought yeah. is a really important part of autonomy as a, as a person. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes it really, you know, sometimes it really sucks. And one of the things I learned when writing the book and speaking to people about these big upheavals is that trying to figure out what you really truly think about something, whether it's God or the people around you or what you want from life, you know, the period of not knowing the answer to those things can be incredibly painful. It's a lot easier to just coast on the default of whatever you are used to thinking. Yeah. But equally, like in that pain and in that ordeal, you often wind up learning heaps about yourself and heaps about the world and kind of yeah. finding a self-reliance yeah. that you might not have yeah. had you never had a horrible experience. So are you sort of saying, just acknowledging that you're, that you're thinking. I get. I, I remember someone saying to me. I, I think I might have said, oh, "I'm just sick of overthinking things." And he said to me, "Well, that's what your brain does. <laughs> you can't overthink yeah. things because you—that's all you're doing. That's what your mind does." Um, mm -hmm. Being able to accept that—that that that's just what I'm thinking. Not these are good or bad thoughts. These are right or wrong thoughts. But these are just mm -hmm. thoughts. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something, as you said, you know, being able to recognize yourself, being able to affirm yourself that this is, it's not, it doesn't have to fall into those categories. It's just where I'm at at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't all have to be productive towards a goal. You know, I think we can think of, uh, we can think of 
thinking <laughs> as a very linear process. Like it has to go yeah, in a particular with the result. It to, exactly. It has to resolve. It has to be a perfect cadence at the end. It has to be a good argument. And yeah. that just doesn't match, I think, most people's experience of thinking most of the time. You know, it's just kind yeah. of chaos and cacophony. But that's okay. You know, things, parts of yourself and parts of your priorities will show up in those thoughts, whether or not they follow a sort of neat chronology. You know what I mean? Mm. So do you, why, why is it then that I think, you know, when we look, I think, <laughs> when we look at our world, what's your take on why there is so much advice out there? What, as I think, I guess we've sort of answered this in a way, but what is the need for advice? What, is, it, is it just the search in itself? Uh, I don't know. That's such a good question. No one's ever asked me this before. Why is there so much advice? It has to have a little bit to do with quite high anxiety about getting it right. Yeah. Like I would never I would never go to you for advice about what to have for lunch because it doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. But the things that that'd be bad advice for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the things that people go to people for advice on other things that matter. And I think for whatever reason, for a combination of things to do with the world and things to do with the modes of thought that we're all in, I think it just feels incredibly high stakes a lot of the time. And so I think I think people feel immense pressure to kind of quote unquote get it right, whether it's a question about should I take a gap year? Should I date this person? Should I get a divorce? Should I sell the car? Should I put mom in a retirement home? Like whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. That are actually just ultimately kind of personal questions for you, I think you feel this sort of vice-like pressure to get it right and not make a mistake and have optimised the thinking. And yeah. so I think I think it feels like you're under a lot of pressure to not yeah. slip up. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? I think there's a certain discomfort around situations that come our way and we feel like we have to take a side or we have to have some view on it. And, and for some people we have to share that view. Yeah. And someone said to me on the weekend, someone said, how do you deal with what you do, you know, talking to people and people come to you talking about all these sorts of things? And I said, you know what? It's actually a gift. I don't see it as a burden. I see it as a gift because, as you said, people making themselves vulnerable, trusting me with themselves, actually trusting me with themselves, you know, that's that's priceless. And I feel energized by that. What does take it out of me is when people want to give advice, when people want to say, no, this is what they should do, or this is what you should do, or, you know, if only if they did this, then everything would be okay. And I think it's that okay, that okay business, which bugs me a bit that, yeah, of course I want to, I want to be okay. <laughs> but to think that we have this, this thing in our hands to make everything okay. I think, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's it's much better to, to just say as humans, we're on this planet and we actually need to be together and be with one another. I don't know. Sorry, I just took up all of that. No, that rings very true. That rings very true to me. And you know what? Funnily enough, it's dredging up a memory from like year 10 religion, um, which I guess is just a really classic Buddhist thought. 
which is that it's so easy to kind of keep waiting sometimes a little frantically for the circumstances to change mm. such that you're finally happy and you're finally okay. Yeah. And, you know, you hoping that like if I pull this lever or if I open this door, you know, then it'll all finally be okay. Yeah. yeah. Especially, you know, at this point in history and at this point in our lives, things are really prosperous and it does often feel like a perfect happy life is just within reach if only you could not mess it up you could it could all be okay and obviously that's false and obviously the the ultimate sort of thing to think is well no you just have to somehow reconcile oneself to the inevitability of suffering and the importance of togetherness and so on but it's so hard to let go of the idea that yeah if yeah. i just it'll all be okay if i just could tweak that then it would all be okay yeah, yeah. Me, it's all okay <laughs> And that's what I mean, I guess, you know, what makes life okay? He talked about happiness and talked about suffering. And, you know, is it is it the avoidance of suffering? Is it the 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 final, as you said, the final complete, whatever the word is, completely finding fulfillment and happiness? But is uh, is life just okay as life? You know, if, are these other things, do these other things get in the way of us just living the way? We live. Totally. This is, it's funny, there's, this is a bit of a long bow to draw, but so in philosophy, sometimes people think about utils, which is like a measure of welfare or a measure of happiness. And the idea is that the, you know, the better an experience is, the more utils, shorthand for utility, that you get from that. And I've always found this a little alien, maybe because I'm, wired in a different kind of way but for me the joy that I get from really small things in the everyday doesn't actually feel like a smaller joy mm. than the joy of like my wedding day or you know my happiest moments in life and you know these they're all joys they're all kind of I guess what I just mean is I often feel like I'm maxing out the joy scale even <laughs> with these really really tiny little things yeah that's good. And I think Oh, I guess so, but sometimes so sometimes I feel like you're under pressure to sort of aspire to more or make life be more. Yeah. And so when you, when you said, is life okay just as it is, you know, it's often funny to me that you know, a, a warm piece of toast or a firefly can seem like yeah. the greatest thing that's happened. And yeah. that's it's actually quite small, but, you know, in it lives quite a lot of joy if you let yeah. it. No, that's true. I remember years ago uh, there was a guy we used to do his still do sometimes a soup and blanket run during winter for homeless people and there was a guy out at town hall sitting on this uh milk crate and he had a trolley with all his stuff in it and i offered him food and he said no 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 thanks i'm happy and i said really and he said yes i've got all i need there are other people who need more than me i've got all i need i'm happy and i really struggled with that for a long time uh, because I thought, no, look at his situation. And when I thought about it, I was thinking I was deciding what he needed in order to make mm. him happy. Uh, but his life, to him, that was life. That was okay. He, I'm sure he wanted for things, but mm -hmm. it was content with that. Contentment. Mm. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's it. Now, you do, you're doing a lot of stuff about doubt. Yes, that's right. <laughs> How does that? How does doubt fit into all of this? 
So in philosophy and in the kind of thinking that I've been interested in since high school, um, a lot of emphasis is placed on belief and the ethics of belief and questions about under what circumstances you're allowed to believe something, whether you can believe something not because of evidence but because of, you know, moral or practical considerations. Like it would make my life better if I could believe this, so I'm going to get myself to believe it. Like is that a an appropriate or an okay way to believe stuff. So there's this very long tradition of thinking about belief as the site of interesting questions about responsible thinking and moral considerations. The reason I work on doubt is that I started to think that the absence of belief is probably just as interesting as a site for some of these questions. So under what conditions should you stop believing something? You know, when do you see, I mean, you think about most of the stuff we believe, we can't remember why we believe it at all. Like you don't keep a log of the evidence all the time. You just keep on believing stuff. So under what circumstances should you stop believing something that you've always believed? And then as a sort of sidecar question, when might it be really morally painful or bad to doubt something. So I've been really interested, for instance, in questions of doubt in interpersonal or political settings and the ways that in our closest relationships, friendships and marriages, and to a certain extent, I think, you know, citizen to citizen or in political relationships, Mm. um, in a lot of those, it can seem really quite deviant to be very sceptical and apply rigorous standards of doubt. So when your spouse says something, you're not meant to, you know, go check for proof. When your closest friends tell you what they're going to do, you're not meant to say, well, are you really? I don't know. Let's see. I'll wait for the proof. There's a kind of eschewing of doubt that is often very morally valuable in some of these close personal relationships. And to a certain extent, I think that's, I'm increasingly persuaded that that's true in, stranger to stranger relationships as well as intimate relationships so um you know for instance in that in the story you were just telling you know you can go to a homeless man you can go to a stranger on the street and offer help and the reason that that interaction works is that each of you is trusting the other each of you is not kind of acting on what might be rational doubt Mm -hmm. about the other person's intentions and what they really want from me and is it is it safe and so on um so those are those are kind of the themes that I'm thinking about are the conditions under which doubt is evidentially required and the conditions under which doubt might be a real moral problem and might get in the way of some of the most valuable things that we want from life. Yeah. How, how much of it do you think is stuff we've constructed? So constructions of belief. So when you were talking about uh, the husband and the wife in the marriage and got this belief or even it might be we've been given a fantasy of what the true marriage looks like and how you should and going back to the advice what we're talking about before so many columns and people saying you need to have this to have a successful marriage or you need to do this Uh, and so when we do doubt I guess we are battling against the construct and how much back to my question how much is that just constructed out of, I don't know, sometimes out of capitalism. <laughs> People wanting to, you know, benefit financially from giving advice or whatever it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, 
yeah, one of the things this question draws out is often doubt is not in our control, you know. So you can say things like, well, you shouldn't, you should achieve certain kinds of doubt in some kinds of relationships or for certain kinds of religious or communitarian or whatever goals and you should try to set aside doubt. That's all very well, but, like, if you've ever, as most of us have been, been in the position where you're really unsure about something, it doesn't actually feel like the kind of thing that you can voluntarily no. control no. at all. It can be a very hard for some people. It can be super scary, yeah, exactly, to find yourself unable to believe something that you would really like to be able to believe. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. And is, um, you think that's why people push it away or don't don't want to consider? And equally, I think it's kind of I think we can get into a really pathological relationship with it. Like, <laughs> like you see people have these very obsessive relationships with food where either it's way, way, way too little food or way, way, way too much food. And same thing with sex, like people get into these weird relationships where it's like nothing at all, or this kind of compulsive overconsumption. I think I have a little pet theory that something similar happens with doubt. Like either people can get super, super fixated on doubt and become very, very ensnared by it and it's yeah. very preoccupying and they put a whole lot of energy into it or yeah. they never look at it, they never want to go near it, they can't entertain even a little bit of doubt. So you get this kind of real polarising of the spectrum where you yeah. get these extreme sceptics and extreme anti-doubters and yeah. the healthy mean in the middle is a little underpopulated I think and and it does create a lot of judgment too doesn't it I think when someone starts to doubt or someone and like we were saying before it makes people feel uncomfortable I remember being in third year uh, studying to be a minister and we had uh, just a handful of philosophy lectures and the the lecturer said the first thing he said was put your hand up if you've ever doubted and so I put my hand up and I looked around the room, <laughs> 120 people, and I thought, oh, slowly put my hand down. And I thought, that's weird. Wait, no one else had put their hand up? No one else had put their hand up. Then they're cowards and liars. That has to be false. <laughs> but I felt incredibly judged. And I thought from that day on, I thought I've been thinking a lot about it and it's so good to talk to you about this because... My take is that in order to have faith, in order to have belief, you need to have doubt. Would you agree? Absolutely. In fact, this is, I, I, don't, I can't claim to know Kierkegaard at all well, um, but this is something that I was just kind of finding in some of his old works on, on faith, is that, let me try to do justice to the point. Some people think that to have faith whether it's religious or interpersonal or faith in oneself, you know, it doesn't need to be faith no. in God, just kind of an unwavering commitment. Some people think of that as the absence of doubt and this sort of ascension to perfect, untroubled certainty. And his thought is that's a kind of fool's dream and also it wouldn't even be val that valuable if you could get it because mm. that would be a kind of dogmatically blinded yeah, state. a certain Not claim on truth that no one else has got. Exactly. Whereas he has this, I'm not going to get the wording exactly right, but he has this beautiful idea about you have to be able to sustain your faith while out over 
50 fathoms of doubt. So the idea is it has to be sort of floating on top of and buoyed by mm. the anxiety and the worry and the doubt. And because it's because it's only in that setting that faith counts as faith. Yeah. Uh, I think that's there's got to be something really right about that in all kinds of settings, you know, whether it's religious doubt or self-doubt or doubt in others or, you know, just nihilistic doubt about is any of this worth anything? Is it worth doing anything? Is it all going to come to nothing? The ability to hang on to particular commitments and beliefs with faith has to be something that you do hand in hand with the knowledge that there are reasons to doubt and there are reasons to waver and it's not just a kind of clear cut yeah. matter. That's what I No, I, I totally agree. And I think that I think some people might not want to go down that path because it does seem, maybe even for them, it seems too scary. Because what if I do stop believing a certain thing? What does that yeah. mean for me? What does that mean for my life? What does that, you know, what does it say about me as a Christian or a Muslim or a, a Buddhist or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. in the religious sense? Um, what if I doubt my love for my partner, my love for my children? You know, oh, geez, does that make me a bad person? And maybe that's why people don't talk about it. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, I think it's very hard to get rid of the desire for that kind of total certainty and the sense that you know you can have this totally untroubled faith and I, I it's very hard to get rid of the idea that that's waiting for us somewhere you know if I'm virtuous enough I can find it mm. um and then I think exactly as you say people wonder is it going to make me a bad person to doubt this and I also think they wonder who am I going to be if I don't believe this anymore yeah you know, never mind am I a bad person, just like what am I then if yeah. I'm not? And what happens, you know, especially like the older we get and the more calcified into certain identities we become, you know, who am I if not teacher? Who am I if not philosopher? Yeah. Who am I if not wife, yeah. daughter, spouse, whatever? Yeah. You know, so if you start to doubt those things, it feels like the you in the centre is yeah. going fuzzier and fuzzier, which yeah. is very Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh that thing about the self we were talking about before, and I know when people go into retirement, often for men, you know, they right. got this idea that it's going to be great to play golf four, four days a week and whatever else they do. But that's my goal anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's this removal from your identity in, in the workplace. And I think people do start to doubt themselves. You know, who was mm -hmm. I without this job, without this identity? Who am I now? You know, without a, a task before me, who am I now? Uh, but it's 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 worth thinking about. You're talking about wonder before. Mm. And, and it reminded me of a, a time this uh, student came in. She was in year 12. And she said, I need to know my purpose in life. I need to know my meaning. You've got to tell me what it is. <laughs> I said, ah, oh, that's a hard one. I don't think I can. <laughs> and we talked about it for a while. And I said, what if, and I was thinking about myself, you know, I was thinking, what if our purpose is just to wonder? If we're put on this mm. planet to wonder, what do you think about that? That's a nice one. Because <laughs> you're, yeah. you're a very, well, as I, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Eleanor, but I see you and I, I'm, I'm, I remember you as a very, 
wondrous person. Would that be right at school? Was, like, did this, did your, did your pursuit of philosophy or whatever you want to call it, did it start at school? Did it start in your adolescent years? That is, well, first of all, that's a very nice thing to say. Thank you. Um, I think it did start in my adolescent years. I think I've always, I was very lucky with my parents. And the more of the world I see, the more I realise quite how lucky I was. Um, they were always extreme. Their basic view was you find anything interesting, do more of it and we will be there. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's awesome. You know, like what else can you tell a young girl? And it was it was great. Uh, so I think from from when I was very young, I was very, the idea that, you know, you finding something interesting or kind of transfixing, that that's a valuable thing. Yeah. Was right. so I think I think yeah I think the the asking of questions and wondering what's the basis of all this was um was around when I was like fifteen or sixteen. But I also think that it was it was always fun, and so it's kind of funny like there's a synonym between like wonder as in I wonder whether such and such and wonder as in you know I am struck by wonder. Um, and I've always found those two experiences quite connected. Mm. Um, even in like early maths class, you know, your first experiences with fractals or something, just being like, wow, finding interesting things to be also extremely entertaining. Yeah. Um, that's one way that I feel in touch with life is I like, I can tell that things are going okay for me mentally when I'm in touch with that, when yeah. you get that sense of, of whoa you can kind of hold something up and like look at the light through it and just think like how magical um that's a good sign <laughs> are you saying compared to trying to reason it or trying to work it out or trying to find the answer sometimes i think that we are encouraged to kind of wrestle ideas into submission you know it's almost like you like you got to kill them and pin them to a corkboard and look at them mm. under a microscope, mm. something like this. But when you can see them more as kind of living shiny things that you don't totally understand, then yeah. they're a lot more entertaining and energizing. It's a lot more fun to be around than these kinds of things yeah. that you have vanquished, you know. <laughs> so many philosophers say, uh, you know, historically philosophers, and you would know far more than what I do, but have said, you know, part of enjoyment in life or fulfilment or pleasure in life is about wondering, is about conversation, uh, about those types of things. And and it's hard to put your finger on what comes from that, isn't it? But there is something quite uh, human, I guess. It, f it feeds the human spirit in some way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and you see kids even doing it. You know, you see kids yeah. wonder, like, I wonder how deep that puddle is. And so they'll go and chuck a rock in it or something. And it's just mm. fantastically entertaining to kind of ask questions and see where they go. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Just to finish off, I, I'm becoming more aware of female philosophers just from working at mm. Skeps, <laughs> the ones that are beginning here. And also they're making me aware of more female philosophers, which is fantastic. How, what's your experience been of being of of being a female philosopher working in what I understand is a fairly male dominated area, 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I'm hearing more and more about female philosophers. What's what's that been like? Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. Um, so once again, I've been very lucky. In one respect, I've been very lucky to have just like very important female mentors and to never have been the first woman in a space. Mm. Um, so Caroline West, who was on the podcast a little while ago, she was my supervisor at Sydney University, right. you know, just right. fantastic thinker, fantastic person to be in the presence of. Um, and the second way that I've been very lucky is, well, I went to Skeggs. Um, and so I was, I'm actually still wearing my Skeggs ring. Oh, says, wow. Let your light shine on the inside. So I'm, I do, I like it seriously, you know, left a mark. Um, and one way in which I was very lucky to have been at Skeggs among all the others was that I kind of didn't realise that anyone might not take you seriously because of your gender until I was well in my 20s right. because it was just, you know, you're just not around it. I mean, one of the blessings of being in a girls' school where girls can do whatever they want and you're surrounded by incredible opportunity and you know you just be the best you that you can be is that you almost don't I mean you have to be very lucky and privileged obviously to have this thought but you sort of don't realize that anyone might not think that you were capable Mm. Um, and so it was sort of I think because I didn't even have that as a live possibility in my mind I didn't realize that other people might have that as a possibility in their mind so I was I was able to get quite far before I realized that anyone might not have expected me to um which was very very lucky and I really do think that that was an extraordinary um gift and you know here and there you encounter the odd irritation but the truth is that I think the people who want to stand in your way just reveal themselves as bad thinkers, you know, as unserious philosophers. Because uh, if you are a thinking person, then you can't possibly think that gender or race or age or any of these things makes a difference to a person's capability. Right. So you right. reveal yourself as kind of a fool when you start thinking or talking like that. And then, okay, you're not worth my attention anymore. Yeah. Um, so I'm very, very lucky in that respect. And and I think also, as you say, there's been a real um, uptick in attention to female philosophers and female writing and and that's been extremely valuable and it, and I, what i get is that female philosophers do give a different not a totally different but because of a different gender obviously do give a some sort of extra bit to it in a way do you know what i mean or i don't know if that yeah, totally. i don't think i said that very well but no i totally know what you mean and and you know that's to everyone's advantage like i was just saying you know people you reveal yourself as a bad philosopher if you're trying to exclude women. Yeah. It's just like whole tracts of thinking will go missing if you're not including certain kinds of people. So like here's an example. Um, in moral philosophy, a lot of people have spent time thinking about what's the sort of central moral attitude? What's the way that you have to think of other people to do right by them? Yeah. And there's a very long tradition of thinking that the answer is respect. You know, the fundamental thing that I have to do to do right by you is I have to respect you. Yeah. And that's really good and very interesting. And there's a lot to be said for that. But then along comes this feminist tradition in sort of the mid to late 20th century, and it's still going on now, who points out that respect kind of comes from a very individual and distanced framework. The idea is that I have to respect you and you have to respect me by kind of leaving each other alone. Uh, but there's this other attitude that you might have, which is more like care or love. Yeah. And so that kind of comes from 
attention to like mother-child relationships or domestic relationships or a lot of the care work that yeah. women have historically and contingently been assigned. And so like that's just a thought that goes missing from moral philosophy if yeah. the only people in the room are not people who have a lot of experience with loving relationships, raising children and, you know, the things yeah. that used to be true of men hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Obviously men are now much more involved in care and domestic relations and so on. But you know, so I think philosophy, just as ideas and the pursuit of truth, obviously goes better when there's women in the room. I mean, yeah. why would it? Why? <laughs> Very fascinating, Eleanor. I could talk for ages about this stuff. <laughs> it's been really good, really, really helpful. We look forward to, I look forward to hearing more about your, your stuff. Are you thinking about writing more books? Thanks for asking. Um yeah, I'm actually thinking of writing a book about advice. So maybe it'll maybe it'll weave maybe it'll weave some of these threads together. <laughs> love it. I love it. That sounds great. Thanks again, Eleanor, and thanks everyone for listening. If you've got uh, if you want to join in on this conversation or got questions about it, please contact me or and I can put you in contact with Eleanor if necessary. But um, it's been great you being involved in our conversation. And I look forward to seeing you around. Take care. Bye-bye.